The first one comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. The next reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 26 to 46. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and give, gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day.
At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So as with the second part, uh, as with the first part, the second part, there's an outline there. Uh, at the end of both of the talks, I had just had some notes on some books. If you're interested in following some of this up more, just some ideas of what you might, uh, where you might find those. Certainly, I think if you go to Reformers Bookshop in Sydney, if you go to their website, uh, you'll find th- those books available there and probably at other bookshops. Perhaps the Kurong Bookshop here will have them as well. How's, that's probably a bit better, is it? Yep, good. Being a Christian's tough. Uh, I wonder if you can think about what it is that makes it tough for you. Uh, and I think the longer you go on as a Christian, the more you realise it is tough. You know, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And that's actually hard work. And uh, to keep doing that for a lifetime not just for a little burst of enthusiasm for a few months or something like that, but to keep going. Uh, that is really hard. And sometimes when I'm talking to people about the gospel, non-Christians and, and explaining the gospel to them, and they're starting to think about becoming a Christian, I feel like I can see more clearly than they can how tough it's going to be if they decide to follow Jesus. I start, you know, as I get to know them, I start to think, Wow, this is really going to change things. It's going to change your whole attitude to life. It's going to change your family dynamics. It's going to change what your friends think of you. It's going to change your priorities. Now, I, th- I think it's a great blessing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's going to be a hard thing. I mean, Jesus says, count the cost. As I said, I'm a father with uh, two teenage children. And I look at them and, of course... You know, my great prayer is that they'll follow the Lord Jesus. But I look at all the things that could distract them, all the things that, all the other options they could take, all the other ideas that might capture them, all the other lifestyles that might attract them, and all the obstacles and hurdles along the way that if my kids live, you know, to to a ripe old age, they're just starting in their teens now and so they might have 60 years to go and so many things can happen in that time. It's actually a tough road and a long road. And John chapter 6 shows us a perspective on how tough it is um, and how the uh, kind of response that people will have to Jesus uh, is not as straightforward as we might hope. In fact, one of it, John 6 is a chapter of an amazing contrast between how wonderful Jesus is and how people reject him. So at the beginning of the chapter, uh, 
Jesus is immensely popular. He feeds a crowd of 5,000 and the people say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. They want to make him king. And then he walks on water to his disciples and his disciples are terrified by, the power, by his power. He gets in the boat with them and they go to the other side of the lake and the crowds follow him around to the other side of the lake. Uh, you know, when celebrities arrive at the airport and the kind of paparazzi are all following them wherever they go, through to the hotel, or if they go out to the restaurant, they go down to the beach, the photographers are there. It's a bit like that. Wherever Jesus goes, this crowd are with him. He's the celebrity. But he knows that it's superficial. He knows that's really all there is. In fact, he tells them, you're after me because of the bread that I gave you. And that's just a sign. That's not really what I'm offering. I'm offering the bread of life. The real bread, the bread that comes from God. Uh, Does he mean the manna in the wilderness? That's what they initially think, what Moses had provided for them. No, he means himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. Whoever comes to me will not be thirsty. And if you've been reading John's Gospel from the beginning and you get up to John chapter 6, you just know how true it is that Jesus is the bread of life. Because as the Gospel goes on, John piles up for us descriptions of who Jesus is. I'm sure these will be familiar to you, but think about what we've already heard in John's Gospel. This is the Word who is God who has become flesh. He brings light and life. He brings grace and truth. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He gives the Spirit. He is the new temple. He gives new birth. He gives living water which wells up to eternal life. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. His words are from God and they take you from death to eternal life. That is the message of John's Gospel. That the message of Jesus and life in him. I mean, that's the central message of the Bible. It's the most important thing you'll ever hear. Every hope that you could have. Everything true and beautiful and good is in him. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat me and you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. It's a metaphor for the total blessing and complete satisfaction in God that you find through Jesus. So here he is with them and they're after him and he offers them bread and they say they want it, but they don't really want it. John 6 is actually a picture of the very mixed reactions that Jesus receives, and he knows it. He says to them, you're after the bread, but you don't understand. You don't see that it's a sign that points to me. You've seen me, but you don't believe me. And that starts to show in their reaction. They grumble. Who's he to think that he's the bread of life? He comes from a family in Nazareth. How could be anything like Moses, who fed our forefathers in the wilderness? And Jesus pushes them. You have to eat me. You have to drink me. You have to drink my blood 
if you want life. It's sign language again. But they hate it. How can that be? In fact, towards the end of the chapter, even some of his own disciples are walking away. This is a hard saying, they say. Who could accept it? By the end of the chapter, it seems like there's only the 12 left there. And Jesus asks them, are you going to leave as well? And Peter says those famous words, Lord, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. See what's happened? It started with lots of people interested in Jesus, but the more they hear, the less they like what they hear. They can't get his point. He is disturbing and confronting for them. And when eternal life is right there in front of them, they miss it because they miss him. Uh, my wife Liz's family have got a family story. Now, you know how these sort of stories develop during the generations, and you're never quite sure exactly what the truth of it is. But anyway, this is the story that I've been told many times, actually. Uh, her, her, it must be her great-grandfather, or maybe it was her great-great-grandfather, uh, was living in Adelaide, and he had some friends who'd heard that there were some um, minerals to be found up in the northeast, and uh, so they were going to start a company and go up and uh, mine. And he was offered a share in this company. I think there were going to be eight of them. And he said no. We know what the company was. BHP. <laughs> it was right there in front of him. And he said no. Well, that's what's happening here. Uh, the bread of life there. And they don't want him. What's going on? Well, back in chapter 3, John has already, uh, Jesus has already explained what's going on. Jesus says, the, back, John 3, 19 and 20, The light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The bread came, but they chose hunger. The water comes, they want thirst. They hear the words of life, but they remain dead. He says, because everyone who does evil, hates the light and won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, the light comes, but whether you want the light or not really depends on your situation and, and, and what's happening, doesn't it? Uh, there was a, a guy rescued recently, just this week, from a yacht. I don't know if you, you read about it. Um, you can imagine how he felt when the searchlights kind of appeared and the helicopter turned up and the, or the boat was, you know, with the lights shining on, the, on the, uh, the dark sea and he would have fired his flares if he had any and waved and shouted and you know, anything to get the light. But of course, if you're escaping from jail or on the run and the searchlights are looking for you, uh, you're not quite as enthusiastic about finding the light. In fact, you'll do everything you can to avoid the light. And that's Jesus' point. The light you know, is a good thing. It's God's blessing. Jesus brings it, but people... Fear it because it actually exposes them in their opposition to God. That's our problem. It's not that we don't know enough about God or that we haven't heard of Jesus. It's that we don't want to know God because that will change us. That will challenge us. That's, and that is how deep the grip of sin is. 
that in ourselves and of ourselves, we are committed to living against God. And so the Bible calls us slaves to sin, dead in sin, blind, deaf. And that's what's happening in John 6. People see, but they can't see. They hear, but they won't. And that's always true about us. We live in a spiritual golden cage. We think it's comfortable. We think outside the cage is terrifying. And so we stick to where we are. And we can't see that Jesus is the bread of life. Our self-centeredness and our pride lock us in. It's, so it's a terrible picture in John 6 of what's on display and what's on offer and people rejecting him. Uh, the great thing is that there's a big but in John 6. That's not the whole story. Uh, Charles Wesley has that wonderful hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. And that's what Jesus talks about in John 6. First of all, he says, the Father has given people to the Son to be his. Verse 37, verse 39, all those the Father gives me will come to me. See, all those the Father gives gives me, will come to me. I will lose none of those that he has given me. Election is not an arbitrary choice. It's personal and loving. Before the creation of the world, the Father gave people to the Son. God's election is always connected to Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 says, we have been chosen in him, through him we've been predestined to be the children of God. Our election is completely tied in to Jesus. And Jesus puts it into effect. Uh, that's why if your question is, am I chosen? Uh, the answer is to look to Jesus. But more of that in a moment. God has chosen his people before creation, before we've done anything. And the great thing about that is it means we don't have to impress God. God doesn't run a talent quest to work out who's going to get in or run a beauty pageant and choose the lovely, attractive people. Because if he did, we wouldn't have a chance. God, in his mercy rather, chose hopeless, helpless sinners. We are the Father's gift to the Son. And that means that God's love is active. He seeks and he finds. Uh, that's what Jesus is doing. He's actually there to draw people to himself. Uh, the Father gave people to the Son and he sent the Son to find them. Uh, one of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is the, you know, the, the lost sheep. It's a good parable. And there's one little detail that I particularly like. And that is that when the Shepherd goes and finds the sheep, the lost sheep. He picks it up and he puts it over his shoulder and he carries it home. He doesn't go out and kind of put a rope around it or belt it till it gets home or something like that. That's, 
he's gone looking for it. And when he finds it, he picks it up and he takes it home. That's part of the joy of election, that God went looking for you. And God breaks through hard hearts. Jesus says that the people who come to him are the one that God calls and that when God calls, it works. Uh, Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. It's written in the prophets. They will be taught of God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And so you see the two sides. On the one hand, no one can come unless the Father draws. Because we're in the grip of sin. We're in the jail of sin. No one can come unless the Father draws. On the other hand, all that the Father draws will come. Jesus says he will accept everyone who trusts, everyone who comes. He won't drive anyone away and no one can possibly come unless the Father draws them. So that's what the theologians have called over the years regeneration, new birth. That God works on us and works in us to undo the shackles of sin that we couldn't possibly undo for ourselves. To turn us around to himself when we're running the other way. So we start to want to love him and want him. See, our sin is terrible, but it won't beat God. Isn't that great? God's not going to be beaten by your sin. Now, the doctrine of election, as I said, can raise that kind of question, am I chosen? And that can be disturbing and depressing for people, uh, wondering about that question. Am I in or am I someone God's chosen? But this chapter really helps us to see what the practical answer to that question is. The people that God has chosen are those who come to Christ. They're given faith in Jesus. So if you have faith in Jesus, you are chosen. And if you're worrying, I'm not sure... There's no point trying to kind of find some other way of you know, finding God's computer list somewhere and find if your name's on it or something. You just ask, Lord, I want faith in Jesus. And when you ask that, isn't that already the seed of faith? And you wouldn't even begin to ask that apart from the fact that God is calling you. So if you are worried about your election... A look to Jesus and hear his promise. He saves everyone who comes to him. And there might be someone who you wish would become a Christian. Uh, Someone who you've prayed for, someone who you've done your best to convince them, you've you've tried out your best arguments, you've explained it as well as you can, you've read books that you thought were just going to do the job and you've given it to them and that doesn't seem to do anything and they just seem like a really hard case. You know what? You were a hard case as well. So was I. That's the group of sin, but God is not defeated by it. So don't give up. Keep on sharing. Keep on praying because it's in God's work, not ours. 
So Jesus says people have been given to him. He's gone looking for them. He's broken through to them. They've come to him and he won't lose them. And you know why? Because they're his. They've been given to him by his father. I don't know whether you find you've got a tendency to lose things. Uh, I do. When my son was very little, uh, here's a family story that is repeated in my family quite often. When my son was very little, um, I guess he was three or four or something, he announced at one stage to Liz, I'm being daddy. Okay, what are you doing? Where's my watch? Where's my ring? Where's my wallet? (laughs) So I was kind of relieved this morning when Scott said, uh, where's my watch this morning Uh, when when we're at his place? Uh, I, I have a pretty strong tendency to lose things. But God doesn't. He doesn't lose people. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none of all those he has given me. God loves you so much, he won't let you go. Our wandering weakness is not going to beat God. And that's great because we are so easily distracted and discouraged and tempted and deluded. You know, if it was up to me to stay a Christian by myself, I don't think I'd make a year. I'd hardly make a month. I'm not sure I'd make a week. I'd give up. I'd look at so many other things I've tried and then given up. But God doesn't give up. And that, look, that's a great thing to know about your fellow Christians as well, your brothers and sisters. There might be brothers and sisters that you worry about and you wish you could get them more organised. You wish you could get them to come to church all the time. You wish you could get them to read their Bible more consistently and see the danger of the temptations they're indulging in. But you can't. You know, it's not your job to arrange their lives. But the great thing is God actually does have it in hand. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep encouraging them. You should... But you can actually do that with a confidence that it's not all up to you. God's not saying, I'd love to keep some of those people, but if only you'd make that phone call. I'd make the phone call, but you're actually working in his sovereign work. Now, we need to still keep working on growing. In fact, that's an important part of, of being a Christian and This is one of the reasons why we do keep working at growing as Christians. So Paul in Philippians 2 says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And God's total commitment to his people, to his chosen people, lasts through to the very end. Jesus won't lose us. And Jesus says he will raise us up. He will raise up all those the Father has given him. God doesn't get distracted halfway through or lose interest or change his mind. What he starts in your life, he will complete. You see the lovely flow in this passage? Given to the Son by the Father in all eternity, sought out, drawn kept and then raised on the last day, all under God's sovereign grace. This is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. 
For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes him will, him will have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Even death will not defeat God. He has raised Jesus and he will raise every single one of his people. The Father gave a gift to his Son, a gift of his people who would be with God in fellowship with the Father, Son and the Spirit forever. And that is what will happen. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, towards the very end of the book, uh, you, might, you might know the book, you might know this scene, uh, the children who have been the heroes of the book or the, the protagonists of the book meet a group of dwarfs who are sitting in a beautiful field, but they're convinced that they're in a smelly stable. And Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the book, puts a magnificent feast of food in front of them. Let me read a little bit of it. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. Each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of thing that you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said he'd got a bit of old turnip. A third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised those golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. See, that's what's happening in John 6. They have the bread of life, but they actually can't see what they have. They don't understand what they have. They don't enjoy it, even though he's right there in front of them. And we'd be exactly the same. We'd be blind. We'd be deaf. We'd be dead. Except for God's mercy. Because he's called us, because he's chosen us, because he keeps us, we see the feast. We know that he is the bread of life. And praise God, it's not up to our spiritual sensitivity. It's not up to how perceptive and intelligent and clever and moral we are. He's chosen us and he changes us and he keeps us and he will raise us. And it's God, not me. And that is wonderful news. I'm going to pray, and as a prayer, I'm going to take the words of a hymn by Josiah Conda called, Tis Not That I Chose Thee. Please pray with me. Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me has cleaned and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. 
'Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind the world had else enthralled me to heaven's glories blind. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Amen.